0: Future trading involves risk and is not suitable for all investors. Content provided in this segment is meant for educational purposes and is not a solicitation to buy or sell commodities.
1: Hello, welcome to Parlor to Plate, a weekly podcast from EverAg Insights dedicated to offering listeners enlightening discussion and actionable intelligence about dairy markets. I'm your host, Phil Plord. If you've not heard this podcast before, well, join the club. It's relatively new to the EverAg Insights lineup, and we're excited to have you along. If you like what you hear, please like us, subscribe, and tell a friend or two. Okay, first things first, let's timestamp the episode. It's about 1 p.m. Central Time on Wednesday, February 15th, and here's a quick rundown of the markets. CME block cheddar, $1.88 a pound, up just a penny from a week ago. Barrels are at $1.54, down about three cents. Butter came in today at $2.42, up two cents from last week, while non-fat dry milk at the CME was at $1.23, down a penny. On the grain side of things, nearby corn trading around six seventy-six per bushel, down three cents, and soybeans are at fifteen and a quarter per bushel, up a nickel from last week. All right, today we are lucky to have another all-star panel. We have Matt Tranel from our Platteville office, broker agent working with dairy producers in Wisconsin and elsewhere. John Spanhauer, who is an anchor on our commercial desk in the Chicago office. Hello, John. Hello. And Shelby Myers, our Director of Grain Intelligence, joining us today from Purdue Country in Indiana. Hi, Shelby, how are you?
0: Hi, great to be here.
1: So, as is customary, the first thing we're going to do every week is talk about what's the buzz, what is driving activity in your neighborhood. Matt, let's talk about the producer side of the street first. What are you seeing hearing? what's the buzz in your world?
2: Yeah, so everybody continues to comment in regards to the tight margins that are currently out there, low milk price, high feed costs. Uh, In my area of the world, Wisconsin, uh, we're hearing a lot of cost reductions kind of in that $18 to $20, 100 weight type uh, area. And one of the uh, culprits for that, I guess you could say, is the $500 soybean meal, which is really hampering uh, profitability as we speak right now. There's a lot of grumbling in regards to that. When will soybean meal finally fall so that we can uh, see some better margins out there? Uh, One of the strategies that we're kind of seeing dairy producers use to combat that is, is they're either milking more cows or they're really pushing their cows to maximize milk production. And a lot of dairies are doing that through overcrowding of barns at the moment, as that has been quite a bit cheaper than building a new site or building a new barn. We are certainly hearing some building plans, uh, but so far, a lot of uh, overcrowding as we speak right now.
1: It's always a, a surprise to some people that the first reaction to lower prices sometimes is, well, we're going to make more milk and make it up on the cash side, right?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. It happens time and time again.
1: John, commercially speaking, butter up a little, cheese down a little. What's what's making
3: noise in your world? Well, as we talked about, Phil, on the Uh, monthly forecast last week on that video. We've seen China... A lot of people have asked, when is China going to return? And I think there's a pretty strong case to be made when we look at the GDT. China has returned since the beginning of the year on the first three auctions. They've bought... Uh, the second largest amount since they bought since 2014 on a year-to-date basis. So again, the arguments there, China here to buy, uh, they've returned to the market. We've seen prices move quite a bit lower since then. And you have to ask yourself, well, if we were all waiting for China to, to come back, and now they have, and prices have moved lower on a lot of our products, you know, what, what's really made the difference there. And I think you have to look at the European side of things, European milk production. While at this t- point in time last year, there was a big concern that there wasn't going to be enough milk in Europe to satisfy all the demand. And even if there was milk, was there going to be the, enough energy to process that milk supply? Uh, I think time has answered that question. A, we have enough milk and B, as of right now, uh, as luck would have it, uh, we, we've got enough energy to process that. So it, the Europeans ended up with a lot more milk and finished goods than what they expected to have. I think that put them in a case where they needed to go move that product and kind of get back in balance. We went into a bit of a fire sales situation in Europe where we saw cheese move below $1.50 in some cases, skim move into the low, low teens. And butter moved down to about that $2 mark. In the last week and a half or so to two weeks, we've seen that offer back off. And we've started to see prices bounce in the international market, which has allowed for the U.S. prices to start moving higher as well.
1: And I guess every gap week between GDTs, we can say, well, the next GDT is important. But I think that uh, the next GDT is probably important just in terms of you know continually assessing China's involvement. As well as other participants.
3: Yeah, you bet. You know, we, we you, there's that old expression. You got to feed the bull, right? I mean, if China were to back out now, I think there's a case to be made that the prices could pull back pretty significantly. If you've got Europe having cleaned their decks out or cleared their deck a little bit, but uh, the Chinese not remaining in the market. We've got some room for a pullback, but I think just using futures and and market indications out there right now, I think there's reason to believe that the Chinese, even if they don't come back as aggressively as they did last time, they're probably still going to be here. And one last point of that is on the GDT last time, it was one of the largest volume auctions we've seen in a very long time. We saw an enormous amount of product get cleared. Through the GDT auction and prices went higher. Step back from that for one second and just say, "Wow, that's probably the sign of strength right there." Shelby,
1: we're a week or so away from the last WASDI report, so the WASD's in the rearview mirror. What's creating buzz in the grain markets this week?
0: After a uh, what seemed to be a more neutral WASDI, we had some. I brought two big uh, buzzworthy news stories for you this week. The big one is that Mexico reversed its decision to ban genetically modified corn for animal feed and industrial use. Um, Previously, Mexico had announced a plan to eliminate GM corn by January, 2024. Um, They say that they're gonna continue that plan to eliminate that kind of GM corn for human consumption. So think white corn uh, in that scenario. This is a really big new piece of supportive news that we don't expect it to change the outlook for U.S. corn exports as grimly as we thought. Um, The U.S. is certainly still competing for global demand, particularly against Brazil, but Mexico has been a top importer of U.S. corn since 2015. Uh, There's only one year when China surpassed Mexico for U.S. corn imports, and that was in 2020. So losing Mexico could have been devastating for U.S. corn demand. And that's really powerful demand news as we head into this new crop year, uh, as we talk about planting intentions being considered, and if the U.S. really does follow through on Upwards of 92 million acres of corn or more. Uh, The other big grain buzz news that I wanted to bring for you all this week is that fertilizer prices are trending lower. So, when we look at the year so far in 2023, fertilizer demand has been kind of quiet. Many producers are waiting to buy their fertilizer until uh, those prices fall even lower. Part of that is because they're still higher than historical averages, right? So, they're just lower than they have been the past year. If farmers do indeed reach that lower cost of production, say, you know, corn uses about 50% of the overall agricultural fertilizer demand, while soybeans use about 11% of that, uh, we could see an increase in either planted acres, total planted acres between corn and soybeans, uh, all looking to capture that marginal profit boost.
1: And of course, if all the corn growers race to the fertilizer store at the same time, you could see a little crunch and and that could kind of create a little mini rally, right? We've seen that happen before.
0: Oh, absolutely. And talk about what mass chaos that would be if we see availability constraints as well as logistical constraints to get fertilizer to the hands of that mass purchasing. Uh, It could be chaos all around. You know,
1: that sort of planning for for the planting season brings to mind what I think is center of the plate for our conversation this week, which is kind of around budgets, right? How people are looking at uh, where they are relative to where they want to be and what they're doing to get there. John, I get the sense looking at things commercially, especially like, let's say, the butter market, where some of us are saying, yeah, you know, 245 butter doesn't seem cheap against the long run of history and we're building stocks and maybe we could be cheaper, blah, blah, blah. On the other hand, I think that that our guess is that people have, you know, because they paid three and a quarter last year, you know, 250 doesn't seem expensive. They have a reasonable number in their budget. And, you know, do we sense that people grow impatient, you know, in terms of waiting for coverage or they feel like, all right, well, it's February, whatever, I got to do something here and away we go. And we see some pretty good support in some of these markets just from budget buyers.
3: I think maybe the attitude could be summed up by what seems like a Yogi Berra statement of 250 butter isn't 325 butter. (laughs) And uh, I mean, it seems pretty obvious, I think, to say that, but People had to pay $320 last year. And I think that caught a lot of people off guard. It was very painful, but yet it it had to be done, right? If you're gonna keep product on the shelf. And here we are in a situation where I think everybody's looking at it saying, Yeah, I believe that the butter price is gonna be lower this year. Maybe even two fifty is more expensive than what I might have it modeled out to be or what my expectations are. However, it's not three twenty-five. I've got a chance or three twenty, I've got a chance to Take that risk off the table right now. And to your point, Phil, I think a lot of budgets may have been written in the fall when prices were significantly higher. So you're able to lock in a price that's probably well below some of your budgets. It's kind of a, a win-win here in terms of just getting the job done.
1: And no one wants to. I mean, I mean, human nature, right? I mean, you have a chance to buy 250. You may probably paid 325 last year because you got caught. No, one, if it happens to rally again to 325. However unlikely that might be, you don't have to be looking at your boss saying, well, yeah, I thought it was going to go cheaper and here we are naked. Right. I mean, I think that's kind of that almost goes in the unforgivable uh, category.
3: Yeah. If you lock it in and we move lower, you get to uh, keep your job. And if we go, if you don't and we go higher, uh, you, you might be looking for a job, I guess might be the way to look at it.
1: I get the sense, Matt, that things are really delicate from the producer side of the street when looking at budgets. I think that uh, you know, last year, by and large, was a good year for dairy producers. Now we see milk futures prices coming down. We see feed costs staying about the same, so we prospective margins are getting more narrow. How do you sense our clients on the farm side of the fence are are looking at things? I say, hey, look, you know, should we just turn up our nose at twenty dollar milk futures because that's still a high number? Or how how are you approaching the process and what what are the conversations you're having with producers?
2: Yeah, so I think it all depends on the uh, trading mindset of, of the client and what they're comfortable with, uh, and, and also where they're located at in the country. If you're talking Midwest, $20 milk does a lot more for you than somebody in the West or somebody uh, in the South, uh, where their cost productions are significantly higher. For an aggressive dairy, $20 milk features might be something to uh, just jump at right away and, and and go out there and sell if they're comfortable with it. And if they have the gut for for margin essentially if they if they feel that there might be some economic worries in front of us uh, they may like to just uh, ride out the first couple couple months or six months and then transfer into a more conservative type strategy in the second half but for your for your dairies more so in a high cost production area are mainly using some type of minimum type strategy to enhance downside coverage but also give them Upside opportunity in the event that uh, things do get quite a bit better later on.
1: How do we have the conversations around locking in a loss? I mean, sometimes we find ourselves there, right?
2: Absolutely, it's 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 not easy. Um, I had that conversation with the dairy here this morning uh, when I had mentioned coverage, and their response was that's that's not appealing at all. And ultimately, I kind of look at where we were at last year, the equity build that we had on dairies, and kind of turn it into a mindset of okay. While it's not appealing this year, we still need to move forward to ensure that should prices go to a number that we are not even more excited about, uh, at least we're still in business moving forward when there are uh, more optimistic times. The
1: planters are going to roll here pretty soon, Shelby. We'll be hearing about somewhere, Southern Illinois or Southern Indiana, the big land gets rolling. When do growers make decisions about acreage and how do you see, what, what, what are the numbers favoring today? And how do you see things going forward in terms of is the battle between corn and soybean acres overhyped? Is it real? How do you think growers are approaching that from a budgeting process?
0: Well, on the budget side, I certainly think that growers consider that into this time period. You know, taxes are due March 1st for the previous year. So that certainly comes into play of whether or not they need to make purchases on the previous year's tax liability and And some of those decisions, there's certainly an agronomical piece to this, too, that you do have rotations um, coming into play where a grower is going to consider corn on corn or soybeans on corn or uh, however they've decided to, to move forward. But certainly in those fringe acres, that's where we keep an eye on whether or not corn acres move to soybeans or soybean acres move to corn not all corn acres can be grown as soybean acres. There's only a a limited number of states that grow soybeans. So we watch for those fringe corn acres to change, whether they change to soybeans or maybe they change to cotton. And that really plays into that cost of production conversation too, and whether or not you're gonna see the profit going forward, and then how you wanna sell down the road on what you grow. We get a look at USDA's planting estimate Next week, during the USDA Agricultural Outlook Forum held in Washington, DC, that's the first look at USDA's forecast for both the supply and demand for not only grains, but dairy, oilseeds, and other commodities. And then March 1st is when everybody starts filling out their planting intentions, and we don't get an answer till the
1: end of June. Right now, by the numbers, are we favoring corn or soybeans, just market price-wise?
0: Market price, we're ever so slightly favoring corn. Um, We're right on the fringe of that break-even price. But as some of these cost of production estimates get updated, we could see that favor corn even further.
1: All right, John and Matt, our last segment of the show is if I were a, I would be. So John, if I were a dairy commercial player, you pick whether it's an end user or manufacturer, what strategies would you be considering today?
3: Well, I think if we were a manufacturer, right, you have to look at each product. And just a real quick rundown, we would say if we take a look at nonfat dry milk right now, there's a pretty good case to be made that prices are going to be higher later in the year than they are now. And if I had the ability to do so, I would probably try to buy spot right now before I bought the future side, the financial side when and if that's possible, simply because if we take out our carrying costs, it's uh, just a little bit advantageous. If I go to the butter side right now, it's a bit of a split right there. If I was a end user, I would probably want to, you know, I could use the financial. But if I was a a manufacturer of butter, I would probably be looking to own inventory right now and use some of these premium futures to my advantage to carry that product into the fall. And then finally, as we move to the cheese side, cheese futures have a significant premium in them. I really feel like if I'm an end user or a processor and I've got the ability to hold inventory, specifically the barrel side, there's a really, really strong carry in here and the ability to own that physical product and sell futures against it and or own that product as opposed to owning the financial, simply because the futures curve in the cheese market is such a premium structure to cash right now.
1: Quite a difference from uh, much of last year where we're looking at inversions day after day after day after day.
3: Curve couldn't look different in the cheese right now, at least.
1: Matt, what about dairy producers? What would you be doing if you were a dairy producer today?
2: Yeah, so I'd be continuing to watch the markets and hedge into rallies like we always would, uh, would look to do. Real recently, we did catch... A rally in Q2 and Q3, albeit it did not stick around for very long. But I would be looking at more conservative type approaches right here and now, given that prices are likely either under your breakeven or right at your breakeven in the second half of the year. Given the fact that uh, lower prices would likely bring about less milk production over the course of time, I would want to keep on to most of my upside opportunity moving forward for as long as possible, letting the market per se, tell its story a little bit. And so I'd be using CME type put options. I'd be using dairy revenue protection. I'd be using LGM dairy type derivatives uh, initially, and then building a strategy around that if a particular rally were to take place. So work with an advisor, find your strategy, run some stress tests against your financials, where you'd be at if if prices went to a certain level. And from there, uh, draw up some type of strategy based upon that. And also start to look at the second half levels because some of those prices might actually be at some dairies break evens as where we are today.
1: All right, Shelby, John, and Matt, fantastic contributions on the buzz and moving to the center of the plate. Really appreciate you guys being here today. Thank you very much. Thanks, as always, to Paige Driscoll, our media master who makes us all sound good. Thanks to the listeners for joining us today. If you like the show, subscribe on your favorite app. And if you'd like to learn more about how we help people manage risk, contact us at insight at